This is Paula Windobro, and you are listening to CinePod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. It's a long time no see. Yes, I know. It's as if we just did another host rap back to back with this one. So weird. <laughs> it's, it's slightly disconcerting because usually there's a week between. But since we took this time off, we're doubling up right now so we can quickly, quickly get some episodes out to our demanding fan base. <laughs> Who are screaming like like the peasants, like like at Frankenstein's castle with the pitchforks, torches, yeah, torches, fire. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so on the show today, we have Paola Widobro, returning champion. We had her on for, I think, one of the best episodes of Barry, which is also one of the best TV shows on any network. We had her on a couple of years ago, and I remember because there wasn't a pandemic yet, and we actually sat down in your office in the conference room and had a chat with her. I was very excited because that episode of Barry had dropped maybe two weeks earlier, and then there we were talking to her and since then she might have done a thing or two like if for instance she <laughs> shot she shot uh the movie that won best picture last year coda uh, you know, just a little thing like that. <laughs> just a little little tiny thing and also she shot pam and tommy one of my favorite shows of the last year she shot physical she just has an amazing uh resume her career is on fire. No, no joke. She's uh, she's done really, really, really well. And let me tell you, made some really good choices, really yeah. good choices about what to shoot. So, uh, yeah, really exciting to get her back. It was interesting because like Coda is a movie that has interesting visual limitations. One of them being you're not really going for close ups when you have to see someone's hands. Mm -hmm. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's sign language is an important part of it. You're not going to like dolly behind a big pole and have a cool foreground element when you got to see somebody's hands the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so that created an, an interesting challenge for her in terms of giving the movie like a great look as she did, but also keeping in mind that audio couldn't carry certain parts of it that you had to see stuff. And it was interesting too, because that movie it's a character piece more than anything and it's kind of letting the characters inhabit a space and making a wonderful world for them and then compare that to pam and tommy which is just an aggressive visual show so kinetic so moving and so much of her work is like that too you know same with physical so it was great to talk to her about that yeah that's exciting i actually i haven't heard this interview and i can't wait to to give it a listen well, and, and I will say this, right after we finished the interview, she told me that she had COVID while we did the interview. What? So, uh, oh, no. So. I know. I, I felt really bad for her in that regard, but, uh, you know, it, it sounds like she's doing fine. And here is our interview with Paula Widobro. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. So we are here with a returning champion, Paula Widobro. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, Paula. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. So to refresh people who aren't looking at a catalog of every one of our interviews, we had Paola on a few years ago when she was one of the cinematographers on Barry, an amazing show that we talk about all the time. And she had shot an episode called uh, Ronnie Lily that was just 
an amazing piece of film. And since then, oh my God, you have gone on to do so many amazing things, not the least of which was you shot a little movie called Coda. Can you talk about Coda? Yeah, I mean, it was really incredible. Um, I've been working with Sean, the director of Coda, since we were AFI many, many years ago. And I shot her director's women's workshop short film at AFI and it went to win a prize in Cannes. And then we did a Talula, which also won some prizes in mm. Sundance. And then like we did another TV show called Little America. And then, yeah, we've just continued to collaborate. And yeah, it was a great experience. So when I was watching Coda, you know, and thinking about the cinematography of it, you know, we're all used to, like, if you're on set working on a movie with dialogue and listening for it, but there's a lot of this movie that obviously has people who are speaking in sign language. And so as a cinematographer, were there any challenges that came along with like not being able to pace out your scene that way? Like you weren't able to hear it. You Did you have to have some rudimentary understanding of uh, sign language or? Uh... Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a process. Like when we would block the scene, Sean, like there were interpreters for each of the actors and then uh, she would sort of run the scene and then the actors would block it as well. But you cannot frame like an extreme close-up with a deaf actor because the language is their hands. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about all the things that you might have had to kind of adjust because even like if you were having, a, let's say, a, a dolly shot that went behind somebody during a dialogue scene, that would be kind of a normal thing to do. But you couldn't do that because you wouldn't be able to understand what anyone was saying if they were saying it with their hands. Yeah, and also, yeah, also actors cannot be walking away yeah, while, while you're filming them and they have to like be able to see each other. And, and Sean wanted it to be like a deaf person watching it would be able to understand what they're saying as opposed to like, oh, we just do a close-up and cut off their hands and then oh. write it down. So that was like a conscious choice. That's really interesting. So how did you go about finding the ways to make it visual when you had these kind of very specific restraints that you had to work within? Yeah, I mean, I think also the film, like the film already had so many things going on. Like it's a coming of age story and it's about a town and it's about a family and there's the music and there's the ocean. So I felt like the story was rich enough where it didn't need a style imposed to it. So mm. I tried, so the cinematography like was a lot more real and naturalistic and sort of more about capturing what was in front of the lens rather than imposing a, I don't know, like a style or something. Mm -hmm. And when you were working on it, was there a sense around it that it was kind of, there was something a little special about this movie? I know it probably would have been impossible to say like, oh, this is going to win the Oscar. But did it feel like it was a movie that was kind of headed to that fate? Mm, not to me. I mean, I, I thought the script was quite amazing and, and it had like a real soul. And, and it also dealt with a story that hasn't been told as much. And it yeah. had like an honest approach. And I did feel that the chemistry of the actors was quite special and the town was quite incredible. So I felt like there were all like really good elements, but I'd never thought it would do as well as it did. It's wonderful to see a movie that's a smaller personal thing, you know, not just find an audience, but also get that level of acclaim. And after that wins the Oscar, does your phone start ringing off the hook? What was the effect on your career of that thing winning the Oscar? Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely doesn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I just finished um, a series for full, uh, it's called Chippendales. And the producer is uh, Rob Siegel. He's the same uh, showrunner and writer of Pam and Tommy. Mm-hmm. So I was I was working on that. Now now that I'm done, I'm going to be going to do a movie written by Diablo Cody. Uh, oh, wow. Called Lisa Frankenstein in New Orleans. So I'm really, really excited about that script. So in the interim, I mean, like, since we talked to you, you worked on Little America and you shot some episodes of Fargo, but you shot the entirety, if I'm not mistaken, of both physical and Pam and Tommy. And sometimes when we talk to DPs who work on series, they alternate episodes or, you know, one DP kind of sets the look and then other DPs take over and and kind of follow through. But I'm seeing more of a pattern now of an auteur behind the lens kind of approach where we have one cinematographer on an entire series. Can you tell me like the good and the bad of doing that? Because TV traditionally doesn't have as much prep time or in this era of peak TV, it can be made however anyone wants to make it. So what were like the challenges and uh, the benefits of doing it the way you did it? I mean, the benefit for the show is that it looks the same, like there's no variations on the look between episodes. And But the problem is you don't get to prep with the director, so it, it can be quite exhausting. Like yeah. you just maybe get to see a location or like you get to have a lunch meeting with the director, but you've never actually spent any time with them talking about the script or their ideas. So it can be quite tiring. And, and I, feel, I feel like it's better when you have an alternate DP. Oh, so if you had a choice, is that how you would prefer to work or do you prefer to work this way? Yeah, I think I would prefer to do alternate DP just because you can prep your episode and gather your thoughts instead of just like seeing the location on the day the first time. Well, to make a point of contrast, Coda, as you said, the cinematography doesn't really impose on the story uh, that much. Like it's not in your face drawing any attention to itself. It's letting sort of the performances play out. On the flip side, both physical and Pam and Tommy are outrageously visual. And Pam and Tommy, I think, has almost an aggressive approach to the camera work. Can you talk a little bit about coming up with the look and the feel of Pam and Tommy? Because it's so... uh, I love that series. By the way, uh, slight admission. The first movie I ever worked on in my life, uh, Pamela Anderson was one of the leads. So I think it's the first time I've ever seen a movie about someone I'd actually worked with. And that was bonkers because the actor, the makeup and your lighting and cinematography all like came together and just completely nailed it. Yeah, I mean, it was super fun working on both Pam and Tommy and and Physical. Craig Gillespie was the the pilot director of both of them. Mm -hmm. And he's like an incredibly visual and like really strong and super smart director. And we were on Steadicam on both of those shows like, 99% 99% of the time. Hmm. And then um, he likes for it to be like, give complete freedom to the actors and sort of light the whole space. And then you start all the way wide and then you push in all the way to a close up and then you like turn around and it becomes the other actors close up. And so it's sort of like freedom for them and a lot of energy and John Cassavetti style, but a little bit more aggressive. So let me ask you, because Pamela, the woman playing Pamela especially, is wearing uh, not extensive prosthetics. But I actually know the makeup artist who did it, Jason Collins. I know his company, uh, Autonomous Effects. And they did like a remarkable, subtle makeup effect on her. And it's, you know, it's like easy to make somebody look like a monster. 
it's really hard to make somebody just look like not just an attractive person, but, you know, like one of the most glamorous people of their time and not kind of cross the uncanny valley of makeup, if you know what I mean. But did that create any challenges for you when it came to like how to light it, especially if you're talking about like wanting to light a scene in sort of a 360 degree way where we can put the camera anywhere were you like really specific with lighting marks or how did you make sure that she looked as good as she could look or that all the actors looked as good as they could look, but also, you know, that we weren't seeing seams in the makeup if there were any to be seen? Well, I mean, I, I thought the makeup was quite amazing. Like it was rare that you could see something on the nose or just like on the forehead, like every once in a while. But for the most part, like it, it wasn't really a consideration as much as you would think. Oh, really? Props to Jason Collins. Yeah, yeah, he was amazing. And then, yeah, we had that animatronics penis as well, which was quite fun. Yeah, I heard the animatronic penis moment was pretty shocking and amazing. And uh, voiced, I believe, by Jason Mansukis, the comedian. Th- that was the thing about that show, though, was it could go into some kind of uh, expressionistic places. Like, it, it, it definitely went into some very non-realistic directions but also it felt kind of grounded in a time and a place were there specific references or anything that you looked at to kind of nail the the look of that time it's weird to think that the 90s are a period now but they really are yeah i mean i i saw some of the barbed wire and like also monthly crew videos and i think it's quite inspiring when you're diving into a real story and there's like all these like photographs and research that you can access and then the fact that they were like such public figures, like I guess one of the concerns of the showrunner and the directors was to not like exploit Pamela again to like sort of be more with her and respectful of her story. But they were also like really crazy, fun characters like Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton or something where, <laughs> where it was magical to watch them. That's interesting. That's a funny way to think about it. I guess that's really true, though. Yeah. And I guess I I do wonder about like what care was taken to make sure that, you know, because the story is essentially one guy getting revenge on another guy by doing something that that ended up hurting that guy's wife that ended up hurting Pamela Anderson more than anyone else. Like it had this the true story has a massive effect on her. And it's about Tommy Lee being a complete jerk to this guy uh, who's you know working in his house. And this is the revenge. And it ends up devastating her so what pains did you go through to make sure like you were saying that it didn't feel exploited of her again it's it's like a very delicate line right because you say you may not be but then you are and then you're like showing the tape again and i mean a lot of the directors were female and and sort of lily james also had like a really thoughtful process in the way she was portrayed and like her character and and yeah i guess we just tried to be as careful as we could with showing her respect and like how her world had been shattered by this tape. Yeah, I I, th- I thought it was interesting. And again, like I had worked with Pamela on a movie that no one's ever heard of uh, in the early 90s. And I felt like she actually kind of really captured the way that I f- remember her being in person, like the humor of her, but also kind of the fragility, you know, because her public persona was not a very fragile one. And, and yet, you know, in person, you know, I just I remember her mostly talking about her dog. That was the kind of person that she was and I assume is. And it was interesting to take the story. Not interesting. I think it was probably necessary to kind of tell it from her point of view. Yeah. And 
And I mean, even though my favorite character was definitely Seth Rogen. He's funny. That character is funny and full of like truth is stranger than fiction level surprises. But also, you know, like when you spend all that time at Tommy and Pamela's house and then you see the apartment this guy is living in or, you know, the Nick Offerman character, like the spaces that these people inhabit. There's such contrast in the kinds of spaces that you explore through the camera. Yeah. And also uh, Seth Rogen's character, like he's mostly alone and he has like all these weight to his soul. Like, I, I don't know, like he's like sad and I guess he's like more grounded and more reflexive. Whereas yeah. Pamela and Tommy are like all out there and like having sex and having fun and like being loud. And so, yes. yeah, it was just like really different energies between the two of them. Even though like all of them are kind of living in a very, uh, shall we say, sex positive world, you know, of their own creations. Like, you know, it's almost sort of like she's in Playboy and then he's kind of like living in the darker side of the pornography world. And then in a sense, it's sort of the creation of the modern world. It's what's so good about that show to me is that it kind of foretells where the Internet in every way was headed, even though no one knew it back then. Yeah, no, it's, it's really crazy what happened with the Internet. So there were a lot of sequences in that, uh, you know, you kind of talk about the aggressive camera work. There were a lot of sequences that were like just push in after push in after push in. It was like montages of going around the horn and seeing where everyone was at that point in the story. And it just kept pushing in and pushing in and pushing in. Talk about the design of those sequences. They weren't 100% push-ins, but there were a lot of push-ins. I remember noticing it as I was watching it, like, wow, they're really taking us into spaces with this camera. What was the thought behind that? It's sort of like the train is moving and there's no stopping it. And we're kind of in this world that's like crazy and unfolding. I think Craig is like extremely visual and he loves like to almost have choreography between the operator, like the camera and the actors, like a dance almost with the actors. And we would sort of discover the scene as we were filming it. And like we would try to see the whole thing with one take almost and then we would just pick up like whatever else was missing it was almost like a play at, at times well let's let's talk a little bit about physical what brought you to physical like what was, what about the material kind of appeal to you yeah i mean i really really love the script of physical like i could connect with the character more and i loved how she would say one thing but then in in her mind she was uh, thinking all these other really dark thoughts and i loved how the camera helped you feel like you were getting inside her head or you were like the way she was watching the world around her. And it was quite magical that it was set in the 80s and it was like about aerobics and the world was sort of quite beautiful to photograph and she's a beautiful actress as well. Uh, but it goes a little dark. You know, there's that 80s glammy look, shiny, colorful thing. Uh, what was the approach to like finding the darkness that's living underneath the surface of that story? I don't know if you remember, like there's like some really frantic scenes, like when she would start going in, in her like food binging modes where she would go and go to the fast food and buy like all these hamburgers and then like run to the hotel and lock herself up and then devour. Yeah. And like a sense of calm afterwards when like after she would throw up. So yeah, it was, it was just like really getting into her frantic energy and like the emotional state of mind and like going from being crazy to like being completely still and calm. There's also, as I was watching the show, it seemed like you were playing with color saturation a lot. 
in terms of how saturation was telling the story. I don't know if it was in the way that you uh, gelled the lights on set or if it was post grading or what, but it almost looked like everything, everything kind of had a bloomy, I don't know what filter, but my brain always just says pro mist. Like there's just kind of a bloomy prettiness to everything, but sometimes it was more saturated and sometimes it was more desaturated. Didn't matter if it was day or night or, you know, in a location that had lots of color or not. Yeah, we, we were using these super cool lenses, the neuroanamorphic from Panavision, the uh, B and T series. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dan Sasaki, like, tweaked them a little bit. And yeah, they have like a sort of magical characteristic to them, like the way they rack focus and the way they sort of breathe and the softness to the image. And yeah, yeah they do have a little bit of gloominess to them. When you were putting together the uh, exercise stuff, How much in physical did you kind of reference the original videos? I actually remember as a kid, my mom had those videos, but I don't remember. Like, I feel like it evoked the the real feeling of them. How much of a recreation of it was it? And how much of a interpretation of how it feels through modern eyes do you think it was? I think, I mean, the production design was really great and the costumes were amazing and and there was like this playful nature to the camera work. Like we were allowed to like do a little bit crazier things when we were in her world or yeah. when she was like transforming herself through dancing. So there was like no limit or structure as to how those scenes would be filmed. Mm-hmm. And like, for example, when she's uh, the first time she discovers uh, aerobics and then the lights sort of start to flicker and like the camera spins around and what else can we do to make it like, completely crazy and disorienting and yeah we were just playful with it it was really fun now i feel like we've talked to a few people who've made stuff for apple tv and i'm just trying to get the beat on it like is making a show for apple tv any different than making a show for anyone else do they give you do you end up getting more prep time do you have reshoots like any of the maybe things that you would get if you were making a movie versus a tv show because i feel like when i look at physical the production value is just off the charts and it feels like a movie and i feel like a lot of that is your work but i i wonder like were you given a little more than you would be given on you know even a premium show like barry in terms of prep time no i think i mean they're all kind of the same yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't say they vary too much like from hulu to apple to really yeah how, it's how, more the budget of the show or or the way it's produced. So how much prep time did you have and how many days would, would you shoot an episode in? I think I had a month before we started filming, but then once we were filming, we didn't really have prep time. Like we would go scout at a lunchtime or maybe one weekend or so we didn't really stop and, and prep again. Mm, really? So it was continuous. Yeah. So, I mean, when at the beginning of our conversation, you were kind of saying that when you're shooting every episode of a series, and I think that there were four directors on physical, that you didn't really have a lot of time to prep with the directors. So what's the way to make what little prep time you have or non-existent prep time you have uh, really work for what you need to do? Mm, yeah, you, you sort of set the look of the show with the pilot or the first episode, and then you create a solid base as to how it's going to go and and then you have to like make sure that it stays consistent and that you collaborate with the new directors and sort of guide them into the vision of the show and also incorporate their ideas and like what they want to do but then make sure that it's still the same show 
Yeah, I always wonder about that. Like if you're working on a series, and I guess a lot of times I'm thinking more about these premium cable shows are so handcrafted feeling, but I'm thinking more of like an ongoing series, like a NCIS kind of a show. If a guest director walked in and threw the DP an idea that was incongruous with how they make the show, how do you go about guiding that director back to something that would feel like the show? Or is that just not your job at all? No, no, no. I mean, I, I think it is part of your job to hopefully before they start, they can watch a cut of what you've done in the past and sort of the dailies and, and you get to spend a little bit of time with them and like show them how sort of the style of, of the show. And then I think when they propose something that's completely not what you do, then you try to incorporate a little bit of it, but not like steer away from, yeah. from the difference. I mean, also at the beginning, you have all this energy and enthusiasm. And then five months later, like you have to keep that momentum going. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Build a house of cards for yourself. Yeah. I mean, like that's, (laughs) yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You you can never phone this job in. You've got to be like fully engaged every day, paying very close attention and making sure that it fits with the stuff you shot, whatever, months and months earlier. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, cool. Paula, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's amazing watching your career just, you know, skyrocket. I expect to see you winning an Oscar pretty soon yourself, not just shooting the film that wins Best Picture, but winning it yourself. Uh, Where can people find you online if they want to see your work? Well, I I do have a a website, paulawidobro.com. Yeah, I guess it's just better to watch the work I've done. Seriously, I mean, you know, and like right now, there's a ton of stuff out there that you've done, but I, I can't I can't recommend highly enough uh, to people that they check out Physical and Coda, which are both on Apple TV Plus and also Pam and Tommy, which is on Hulu. That's where I saw it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and I uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that was awesome. And uh, I I feel like the only uh, mountain for her to climb that like is higher than shooting best picture would be to win best cinematography. But uh, thank you again, Paola. And come on back whenever you want. We love your work and we love talking to you. The Emmy Award nominations are only well, by the time this comes out, probably the awards nominations will be out. But uh, I think she's got a real shot for a couple of nominations this year. For sure. Pam and Tommy, especially just such a great show. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, Ben, it's uh, Bill paying time. All right. You, you recall what that's all about. Who's Bill? <laughs> yes, I yammer on for a couple minutes about one of our fine sponsors. Today's uh, fine sponsor is DZO Film, makers of high-quality entry-level cinema lenses, uh, primes and zooms. I want to go back and actually talk about what the most popular products are coming out of DZO Film, at least uh, according to the Hot Rod Cameras you know, records of, of sales. And turns out this line of lenses that they make called the Pictor Zooms are really, really popular. They've got three of them now. They've got a, a super wide angle, 14 to 30, 20 to 55, and 50 to 125. And by far, most popular lenses that currently are being sold by Hot Rod Cameras. And I got to say that there's good reason. They're an incredible value. It covers an incredible zoom range. They all are super 35 capable and they're relatively fast at either T29s. So if you are in the market for entry-level cinema zooms, including in PL mount and EF mount and that sort of thing, uh, 
you definitely take a look at the DZO picture zooms. They're really, really impressive, especially when you factor in price to the equation. Uh, it's a really nice little kit of lenses, and they can carry around a pair of them inside of a, a Pelican-style case and really cover a pretty massive zoom range between 20 and 125 between the two lenses and uh, not set you back too many dollars when compared to traditional Super 35 professional cinema zoom lenses. Excellent, excellent. Check that out. And now, short ends. So Ben, I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, what's your obsession this week? What's your uh, your short end? What do you got going on? Well, sometimes I'll come across a YouTube video or something like that that just is like so full of great information. I want to share it with as many people as humanly possible. And I know that I have talked about Corridor Crew on here before a couple of times. They've got an amazing YouTube channel. They have an app. They've got a whole ecosystem of stuff that they're doing. And they're VFX guys. And they had a new video that dropped last week on July 10th, if you're looking, and it's Nico interviewing one of their younger guys, a guy named Peter France, about the making of a film he did called Scooty. And the VFX that this guy, who is, I don't know, maybe 25 years old, that he's doing would have like blown everybody's mind 15 years ago. I I mean, it's, uh, I don't want to oversell it, but it's like, I've watched the short. The short's like kind of a cool, funny short. But as they go through it, he talks about every tool he used to make every piece of this work. I'm sure that there are plenty that he, you know, that he's not even thinking of, but every trick he in, in the book that he used, you know, like they had a mocap suit that they were using that was like some kind of cheapy mocap suit. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And he talks about how they worked around that. Uh, sometimes they were able, like they, there was a scene with lightning striking in an, in an alley. And he talks about how they made the lightning strike. Like they, they brought in lights like a strobe to try and flicker it, but it wasn't competing with the sunlight. So they had to figure out how to do it in post. And he shows how they did it. He shows how they used this app, which I've seen them use before that you can get on an iPhone that uses the LiDAR and all of the capturing stuff on a phone to create a 3D object. So like you could walk around a shoe or something and make a 3D shoe that you could bring into your 3D things. But he would scan sets so that he could put this robot into the set so he could make a virtual and even shows like there was uh, one scene where like it's the robot in front of a wall and it's a real wall, but it isn't. Because they shot it in a real location and then months later he went back and scanned it using this and then made a 3D version of that so he could put his 3D robot in front of the 3D wall in 3D space so that all the highlights and shadows and occlusion and speculars and all that stuff were all correct for 3D because, you know, there are inherent challenges putting a CGI character into a real world or, or vice versa. And basically for anyone who's looking to do something that's sci-fi or a monster or something like that, like it was uh, just a really fascinating thing. And the shorts, there are links to the short on there and the short's cool. And he's interviewed by Nico, who I think is one of the owners of Corridor Digital. And uh, just a, a really fascinating video that I think uh, most people who would wonder how to add VFX to what they're doing on any level could learn a thing or two from. Yeah, we've uh, certainly mentioned them before. And uh, I think this sounds like a great one. I haven't seen this one yet, and I will totally go and check it out. Do you know which episode it is? Well, it dropped on July 10th. Okay, cool. All right. That sounds awesome. I, I can't wait to check it out. Absolutely. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? 
Well, it's a lot of people's obsession. Okay, here's the thing. Uh, as I was typing something, Google misinterpreted what I was writing. And instead, what Google gave me a search result for was cinematographer salary. And I think it's really interesting because I was actually typing cinematography and not salary. But regardless, Google auto-completed and then gave me these various websites, which lists the pay range for a cinematographer. And I think it's pretty interesting what... Google thinks the pay range is for a cinematographer out there. And Mm. at the very top in this little widget, they give you uh, several sort of options. The first one is a website called Payscale, payscale payscale.com. And I think they've may have transposed their range here a little bit. But on the low end, it says 39,000. And on the high end, it says 93,000. So literally, they just flipped the numbers and said, whoop, there it is, Payscale for cinematographer on payscale.com. Salary.com, very, very pessimistic of what a cinematographer can make. The Payscale, the, the, the range that they list there is 35,000 on the low end to 51,000. Hmm. Sorry, that, that's what they, uh, that salary.com lists it because, you know, clearly salary.com, finger on the pulse of uh, cinematographers out there. Glassdoor, a little more optimistic. 43,000 to 110,000 per year. And then ZipRecruiter, who absolutely has it the most accurate, says starting salary for a cinematographer is 26,000 a year, and then also 110,000 on the high end. And and we all know that really the range is about $12 to about a million dollars. And that's really the range out there. It's not 26,000 or 43,000 or 110,000. It it totally depends on what it is that you shoot, what type of clients that you have, who you work for, if you're a one-man band, if you're truly a cinematographer who is in fact, uh, you know, running a crew, if you're working in narrative, if you're working in commercial. This is a very 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 wide range and the, the sort of websites out there which are, you know, trying to offer some sort of ballpark for that. I think the people who are trying to get into this are way, way, way off the mark. But if you want to get a good idea, you could just look at what, like, you know, the union wages are. And then you could sort of multiply that out on a certain number of jobs and figure out then really what people's, you know, pay scales are. Because a lot of jobs out there do follow the, the union pay scale. But it varies quite a bit. And depends on if you're working in, in low budget, if it depends on if you're working in television television there's there's all these different tiers and then each job classification has its own pay but it could be as low as the high teens per hour to you know over 50 60 dollars per hour depending on what the position is so it's like it's a pretty big range and that's typically actually not cinematographers that's actually all the rest of the camera crew Hmm. cinematographers tend to to negotiate their own they, you know their own rate or their agents negotiate their their rate and there's all kinds of other things that can be attached to that and you might be on a job for months or years depending on on what the situation is and you generally don't get those types of jobs though when you're you're fresh off the boat it, it takes a it takes a long time takes a you know a lot of work and you have to build your way up to commanding that sort of salary so there really are these people who are making like $12 a year because they they shoot a ton of stuff for free. And you really ha- do have these people on the far, far high end of the spectrum who are making seven figures. So it's like, really, it's a huge, huge range depending on. But I mean, like the seven figure, the, the seven figure guys aren't and girls are not being hired off of ZipRecruiter. You know, like, they, they uh, are most certainly are not. They're, <laughs> no, those people are not getting their jobs. No off offense of, to ZipRecruiter or even anyone who <laughs> finds work on ZipRecruiter. I'm just saying. 
Anyway, so I noticed that one of these sites here said like, oh, you know, average salary, $63,000 a year. And then another one says average salary, $50,000 a year. I think that maybe what really would be more helpful if there was a, a median salary. There's probably a median salary out there that is quite distorted by the low end and the high end. But uh, I, I think that depending on what market you are in, depending on what you're doing, you could have a perfectly livable wage or a completely non-livable wage or an incredible wage, uh, but it everything depends. It all matters and that these sort of websites out there which are trying to advise people on their career goals uh, might mean well, but really no, are giving no information whatsoever that it would be helpful to, uh, to most people out well, there. I'm sure that like literally every industry is like so crazy specialized within itself that like they that they would all have a similar criticism. But I do feel like, you know, I disagree. I, I disagree. I think if you graduated from accounting school, you could go out tomorrow and you could probably fit very nicely into like the average, the average pay yeah, scale. Maybe, or maybe. nursing or or bus driving or many other things. And sure, you know, your bus driving salary might be different if you're in Lo a bus driver in Los Angeles versus like middle of the North Dakota. But it totally it's still going to be more or less in the same sort of ballpark. But I feel like this is like this is something we uh, come across repeatedly when we're interviewing people is sort of the two paths which are like let's say you go to film school or whatever you do to kind of become a, a cinematographer like to start your career then you get out of film school and some people are like I'm a cinematographer and that is all I'm going to be and I'm going to work my way up from the lowest budget stuff I can get my hands on to uh, up and up and up and we've repeatedly talked to people who had that exact story and then uh, you'll talk to people like Eric Messerschmidt, who went off and became a gaffer and became a top flight gaffer and then moved into being a cinematographer from there. So some people work up through the lighting department. Some people work their way up through the camera department and then eventually kind of become DPs. And, uh, you know, there, there's so many different variants on that one as well. And there just isn't one way to do it. So to me, it's like kind of trying to figure out what the pay scale is. Like it's the entertainment industry. So you're t you're you are right when you say like, yeah, if, if you graduated with a passing grade in accounting school, you you can probably go work for a firm somewhere and make some kind of money or if you're a lawyer or whatever MBA you know but in the film business it's a little more network intensive and who you know and how you got to know them and also what do you have on your reel what can you impress people with but also uh anyone who gets into this business for the money is uh <laughs> is greedy no. Well, no, anyone who, I mean, like, look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get paid and you shouldn't get paid well. You know, like when you, you work the kind of hours that we all work when we're on a set, you should be compensated for that if your time 100%. Has, has, has any 100%. value to it. But it's also a weird industry to go into specifically for the money. And the flip side of that, of course, is, you know, like if you're out in L.A. and you're making a living and you're a working cinematographer, you should be able to make, you know, a pretty good wage. You should be able to. I don't want to speculate about what people make, but you should be able to make a pretty solid living wage. And, you know, we've been to the homes of a few of the people who we've interviewed here and uh, they seem to be doing OK. Just yeah, saying. They, they do. They, they, they seem to do just fine. If you, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's good work if you can get it. And likewise, though, you can be incredibly talented, but can't sell yourself for the damn or not be fun to be around because, believe it or not, charisma still plays some part in whether or not you get hired. And I will tell you that there's a really talented people who don't work at all. So it's uh, it's really, really all over the place. The biggest grumpy pants DP I ever worked with, who uh, I will not name by name, that dude works constantly. And he was the and he was great. But what a grumpy person he was. He was very grumpy. Anyway, I will say nothing else. Okay. 
I'll have to ask you who that is later. <laughs> I will. I'm, I'll, I will happily tell you. I will say haven't had them on the show. So uh, that, that narrows it down a bit. <laughs> haven't had them on the show. And also wasn't George Foyt, who I keep offering to bring on the show. And George, George is like, when I have a thing I want to promote. So I don't want anyone to think that George is not a grumpy person. <laughs> I really appreciate you you going and, and sticking your neck out there to make it very clear that wasn't George. George is awesome. Anyway, uh, I think that that wraps us up. Who do we need to thank? Hey, let's thank uh, Kays. Kays, uh, composer, uh, creative, director, uh, man about town. Kays Alatrachi, go to musicbykays.com. Hire him to compose music for you. Uh, you, you. You won't be going wrong. I'm I'm serious, man. Case is an amazing composer. Uh, let's also thank Ben Katz, who uh, is on super extra catch-up duty because we're throwing two episodes at him at once. Thank you, Ben, for all that you do and for making us sound like not idiots. <laughs> thank you. It's not easy to make at least me not sound like an idiot. So <laughs> let's just say it's, if, true, if, it's true for both of us. If Ben decided to make me sound like an idiot, I make it very easy for him. Uh, all right. And let's thank uh, Alana Cody. Alana, who is uh, making sure that, oh my gosh, so many episodes are coming out. And if you missed our, our Close Focus this past week, just know that Close Focus uh, should be returning in the near future, just not this week and not last week. <laughs> all right. Well, that wraps <laughs> us up. All right. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.